0: Have you ever wanted a base on a True Story t-shirt or mug? Well, I'm happy to announce now we have some. There's currently a handful of designs and styles to pick from, and I'm hoping to keep adding more soon. So check it out over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash merch. Again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash merch. Thanks. April 20th of next year, 2018, there's an animated film coming out called Duck Duck Goose. While I'm fairly certain it's not based on a true story, as a fan of animated films, I'm eager to see the debut film from a new animation studio, Original Force Animation. They're backed by the Chinese mega company Tencent, the same company that owns Riot Games, the makers of the massively popular game League of Legends. Alongside Jim Gaffigan in the lead role, one of the characters in Duck, Duck, Goose is voiced by none other than comedy legend Carl Reiner. Carl began his acting career in 1948 and became a household name as he played Alan Brady on The Dick Van Dyke Show. That's a show, by the way, that Carl also helped write for five years. As it turns out, writing runs in the family because Carl's son, Rob Reiner, would grow up to follow in his father's footsteps both writing and acting. Rob has a couple dozen writing credits to his name, including classic TV shows like All in the Family, a show he also acted on as Michael Stivic or Meathead, as his character was nicknamed. Oh, and if you saw The Wolf of Wall Street, Rob Reiner was the guy who played Leonardo DiCaprio's character's father, Max Belfort. And yet... With all of those accomplishments, a lot of people know Rob Reiner for his work behind the camera. In 1992, it was Rob Reiner who directed A Few Good Men, a film written by Aaron Sorkin, and went on to be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. It didn't end up coming home with the Oscar, but it's a film that almost everyone knows at least one line from, even if they don't know it's from A Few Good Men. I'm speaking, of course, of Jack Nicholson's famous line, You can't handle the truth. Yeah, I know Jack says it a lot better than I do. That's why he gets paid the big bucks. But since we're on the topic of truth, that's sort of what this show is all about. So what is the true story behind A Few Good Men? I'm Dan LeFebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. It's time for Two Truths and a Lie. Listen closely for the two truths scattered throughout the episode. Then, by process of elimination, you'll know which one was a lie. We'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Okay, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the real Marine attacked in the Code Red incident wasn't murdered. Number two, the real Daniel Caffey ended up being mysteriously murdered, Number three, Aaron Sorkin started writing a few good men on cocktail napkins. Before we get back to the show, I want to let you know that you can chat about this episode by joining the Based on a True Story Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash Based on a True Story Podcast. Once again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash Based on a True Story Podcast. You can also find a link to it in the show notes over at Based on a True Story dot com. And with that, Let's compare history with Hollywood's version of A Few Good Men. The movie begins with a very 90s-sounding musical intro, as the text on screen explains we're at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. The sun is setting, and then we see two Marines sneak into someone else's bedroom. They wake him up. Grab him, tape him up, muffling his screams of protest. Those two Marines are Private First Class Loudon Downey, who's played by James Marshall, and Lance Corporal Harold Dawson, who's played by Wolfgang Bodison. Then on the receiving end of the crime is actor Michael DeLorenzo's character, Private First Class William Santiago. After this, we're at the JAG office in Washington, D.C. when we find out the fate of the man who was taped up. Unfortunately, he passed away. The other two men are being held. We're also introduced to Demi Moore's character, Lieutenant Commander Joanne Galloway. As is often the case, we can kick off this movie by learning that, like this introductory scene, most of this is not real. At least, there's not really any documentation outside of classified information to back it up, that is. According to the film's writer, Aaron Sorkin, the story was one that came about from a conversation he had with his sister, Deborah. It was in the 1980s when she joined the Judge Advocate General's Corps in the U.S. Navy, or JAG, after graduating from Boston University Law College. Basically, JAG are the Navy's lawyers. While Deborah was a JAG lawyer in 1986, a casual phone call with her younger brother drifted into a case that she was working on about something called a Code Red He might not have thought much about it at the time, but it was that phone call that would end up being Aaron's inspiration for the film. As a quick side note here, a code red is slang term in the military for illegal hazing. Since it's illegal, it's something that's quite simply not really something we're likely to know if it happens. Not officially, anyway. There have been quite a few reports of military members claiming to know about Code Red incidents. Usually, they're incidents like what we saw in the film, some sort of retaliation or hazing of soldiers that's not officially sanctioned by the U.S. military. But, of course, there's not going to be any official documentation to back it up. At least, nothing that's available to the general public, like you or I. So while there's no way to know for sure, short of asking Aaron Sorkin himself and he's not replying to my emails, exactly how true the movie is, but I'm just guessing Aaron didn't copy everything in the movie scene for scene from a phone call. Not only that, but we also know from some interviews Aaron has done in the past that he wrote the film while he was at his other job. You see, while we might know the name Aaron Sorkin now because of his hit shows like Sports Night, The West Wing, or The Newsroom, but at the time, he wasn't known. He had graduated from Syracuse with a bachelor's degree in musical theater in 1983 and spent many years struggling to get into show business as he worked plenty of odd jobs just to pay the bills. It was while he was working at one of those jobs as a bartender for the Palace Theater on Broadway in New York City that Aaron had the call with Deborah. By that, I I don't mean that she called him while he was actually working at the bar. The call was actually on a Sunday morning, so I doubt that he was working at the bar that early, but that's where he was working at the time. And it sparked an idea. Later, that very same day, while Aaron was at work, he used cocktail napkins to start writing down the story idea. So with that in mind, we can get a sense for the basic structure of how some of it might have been based in truth. But there's plenty that was made up to fill in the gaps. And that's not even to mention the events that took place at Guantanamo Bay. If you've not heard of that, it's the United States super-secret military base in Cuba. Not secret in the sense that no one knows it's there, obviously, and we all know it's there, but secret in the sense that only those with the need-to-know basis have an idea of the things that go on there most of the time. If we've learned anything from the Aaron Sorkin movies that we've covered in the past on this podcast, movies like The Social Network and Steve Jobs, it's that Aaron's not afraid of trading historical accuracy for a great story. Oh, and speaking of the movie Steve Jobs and Apple Computers in general, as a little side note, Aaron eventually ended up taking those notes from the cocktail napkins and finishing up the script for A Few Good Men on the Macintosh 512K that he and his roommate at the time shared. Anyway, that script would end up becoming his first theatrical play, A Few Good Men, and it launched in 1988. Then, of course, four years later, it would be adapted into the movie that we know of today. Speaking of the movie, it's not long before we are introduced to Tom Cruise's character, the lieutenant junior grade named Daniel Caffey. According to the movie, he's a softball-playing inexperienced jag lawyer who's handed the case of the Marines, Dawson and Downey, accused of murdering Santiago. The character of Daniel Caffey is fictional, but there have been a few people who have come forward since A Few Good Men saying that they were the inspiration for Tom Cruise's character. One of those is a lawyer named Walter Bansley III, who served in the Marines for two decades as a military lawyer. At least as of this recording, if you go to his website at Bansley Law, that's B A N S L E Y com you'll see that in his bio there are reports that he's the lawyer Tom Cruise's character is based on. He currently runs a law firm in Connecticut. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up, and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four-hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge, unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then, because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under Podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under Podcast. EarnIn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another lawyer who claims the story in A Few Good Men is based on him is Chris Johnson, Chris is currently a lawyer in California, and again, on the bio on his website, he talks about his defense of a hazing incident at Guantanamo Bay while he was a Navy Jag. Then there's David Iglesias, who, after the timeline of the movie in the 1980s, was the U.S. attorney for the District of New Mexico from 2001 to 2006, before a rather public and messy firing by the then-president, George W. Bush. As if that's not enough lawyers claiming that they were the inspiration for Tom Cruise's character, there's another one named Don Marcari. Like some of the others, Don has the claim that he's one of the true-life inspirations for A Few Good Men on multiple pages over on his law firm's website. So, what's the point here? Well, for one, the movie is correct in showing that the case didn't involve just one lawyer on both sides, but it's also something where... One can't help but be a little suspicious when a Hollywood movie is made about one of your cases. Of course, that's going to be amazing marketing for you. That's why it's all over their websites. And since a lot of what really happened is hidden in the veil of military secrecy, it's likely that we'll never know who the real heroes were and who were simply participants. Or maybe they were all heroes. And Tom Cruise's character really was a composite of all four lawyers, like some of them have claimed over the years. So who was the real person that Tom Cruise's Lieutenant Daniel Caffey was based on? Well, I've been unsuccessful in reaching the film's writer, Aaron Sorkin, to find out. But the New York Times tried to find out, and they got a response from a spokesperson for Aaron. According to him, Lieutenant Daniel Caffey is based on no one. That's right, he's a completely fictional character. But is that actually true, or is that just something that Aaron Sorkin's spokesperson is saying? It's unlikely we'll ever know. Now that we've had a few more great movies come from Aaron Sorkin that have been based on a true story, it's my own speculation, but I'd venture to guess that he cared much more about creating a good story than worrying about actual history, so it's probably true that he was a fictional character with bits and pieces pulled from the real people. And that makes sense, especially when the actual history is hidden. As you can probably guess by now, there's a lot of mystery around the true story that inspired the film. That doesn't mean there's anything underhanded going on, but there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to a military trial hidden from the public eye. While we don't know a lot about the details of the case, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention probably the most famous line from the movie. It's Jack Nicholson who's playing Colonel Nathan Jessup saying, You can't handle the truth. Actually, that might have some extra meaning. Based on a true story, you can't handle the truth? Hmm. I wonder if that'd make for some good merch for the podcast. I'll have to look into that. Anyway, that line was fictionalized for the film. As an interesting little tidbit, though, Jack Nicholson ended up making a cool 5 million bucks for his three scenes in the movie. Those three scenes took about 10 days to shoot. Not bad. Of course, he worked for it. That scene in his now-famous line took almost an hour to shoot. Just those five words, an hour to shoot. So up until now, you've probably noticed we haven't done a lot of comparison of specific scenes in the movie with history, like we usually do on the show. Unfortunately, that's something we can't really do since we don't know a lot of the details that actually happened. The military has never released details of the account and the people who were there haven't talked about it. Well, most of them haven't. After a few good men was released, one of the men who was involved in the incident came forward. That man was David Cox. David Cox joined the Marines straight out of high school in 1985 with his best friend, J. Stevens. By July of 1986, David was a muscular and fit 5 foot eleven, hundred 170-pound Marine stationed in Guantanamo Bay. David and some of his friends felt that another Marine stationed there, Private First Class William Alvarado, was a malingerer. They thought he faked a lot of illnesses to get out of work. So, one Saturday night, after watching the movie Animal House, David and his comrades decided to take part in a real Code Red that eventually made its way on screen in the movie. Unlike what we saw in the movie with two Marines blindfolding Santiago, in truth, there were about ten Marines who blindfolded, stuffed a rag into William's mouth, and beat him up. That's when David grabbed some shears and started giving William a haircut, and he noticed his skin was turning blue. They stopped their hazing after he started spitting up blood and passed out. William was flown to nearby Miami, Florida where he recovered, so unlike what we saw in the film when Michael DeLorenzo's version of Private First Class William Santiago was murdered, the soldier who was beat up, William Alvarado, was never murdered. But it was still a serious incident. Many of the Marines, David included, claimed they were only following orders. The commanding officer was immediately shipped away from Gitmo, that's slang term for Guantanamo Bay. Seven of the other men were discharged in, quote, other than honorable, end quote, ways. But David was one of three Marines who refused to accept a plea bargain. Instead, they decided to go to court-martial. That's where the lawyers came into the picture. In the movie, the fictional Dawson and Downey are found not guilty of murder, but they're dishonorably discharged. In truth, David Cox was never charged with murder because... Well, William Alvarado didn't die. But after four days in court martial, David Cox was found not guilty of aggravated battery. He was found guilty, though, of simple assault. With that charge came a 30 day jail sentence. That sentence was waived off since he'd already served 38 days in the brig prior to appearing in court martial. He also was not dishonorably discharged. In fact, David Cox continued serving in the Marines for two more years until he received an honorable discharge in 1989. How do we know all this? Well, as we alluded to earlier, after the movie was released, David Cox wasn't too happy with how he was portrayed, even if his name was never in the movie. Mostly, he didn't seem too happy with the fact that the movie makes it seem like the code red resulted in murder when it didn't. Moreover, he felt the filmmakers were stealing his story. According to an interview with his girlfriend at the time, Elaine Tinsley, quote, He was stunned. Here was this movie company that was making tons of money off of his story, and if it weren't for him, the story would never have existed in the first place, quote. By the time 1994 rolled around, David was working at the delivery company UPS, and along with some of the other Marines involved in the Code Red, filed a lawsuit against Columbia Pictures, the production company behind A Few Good Men. As part of the lawsuit, a new string of public attention was paid to the incident at Gitmo, and David was willing to share information about what really happened. That's how we know many of the pieces that we've been able to learn in this episode. But you'll also notice we don't know all the details. A big reason for that is because of what happened next. The night before David was expecting to hear from his boss at UPS whether or not his temporary position would be made full-time, He had some back trouble and decided to sleep on the couch, so he didn't keep Elaine up. In the morning, Elaine went to work, as she usually did, about 8.30, with David still sleeping on the couch. She called home over her lunch break around noon to see if David had gotten the good news yet. He didn't pick up the phone, but she was able to check the messages on the machine. David had gotten the job at UPS. Elaine didn't think much of it and went back to work. About an hour later, she called back. David still didn't answer. Hmm, that's odd. That same message from UPS was on the answering machine, too. Oh, and there was another message from UPS wanting David to call them back. Oh, well, maybe he's just sleeping in late. After all, his back was giving him enough trouble that he slept on the couch. Maybe he didn't get much sleep the night before and is catching up. At about 5.30 p.m., Elaine got home from work, and she saw David's truck in the driveway. When she went inside, she knew right away something wasn't right. All of the doors in the apartment were open, not a single one closed. David and Elaine had a pet rabbit that they usually kept penned in the kitchen, but someone had let it loose. It was hopping all over the house. David was nowhere to be found. Going back out to his truck, she noticed a few things that seemed off. David's latest paycheck, still uncashed, was on the dashboard, and the keys were in the ignition. Then she checked the glove box. It was still there. The 9mm gun was right where he had left it. But where was David? Hours passed. The police were brought in, but they weren't much help. As hours turned to days, Elaine watched their bank account, but there was no activity. David wasn't taking any money out or spending anything. It had to have been agony. What happened? Days turned to weeks. Weeks to months. In the spring of 1994... David's body was found just five miles from his apartment in some nearby woods on the bank of a river in Medfield, Massachusetts. He had been shot four times. Three shots in the left side of his torso and once in the back of the neck. It wasn't robbery. David had cash and credit cards in his wallet. According to the officer working the case, the police believed he went into the woods willingly. Quote, It's our belief that he got into the car willingly, that he knew who was coming to pick him up, and that he went into this area and walked into the woods with this person. I think that if it was somebody that was just holding a gun on him or something like that, they would do it within the first 30 or 40 yards into the woods. David was found almost three-quarters to a mile walk into the woods." While that might explain the way he was found, it doesn't explain why. One theory is that maybe it had to do something with something going on at UPS. David's brother had mentioned that a few months earlier, he had mentioned he thought that one of the drivers and his supervisor at UPS might be involved in a robbery of some sort. But that's not the only theory. According to David's mother, she thinks it might have something to do with his outspoken nature about the incident at Gitmo after the filing of the lawsuit. In particular, He had performed a radio interview in which he opened up quite a bit about what happened. David's lawyer, Don Marcari, has his own suspicions. In an interview after David's body was found, Don explained, I don't know why David was killed. I personally believe it has something to do with the military. He was taken out of his house without signs of struggle. He was wearing his Marine Corps jacket, which he never wore. He was found between two hunting ranges where gunshots would not be unusual, and he was murdered, execution style. End quote. Today, the case surrounding the death of David Cox remains unsolved. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. Unfortunately, since the real incident that's portrayed in A Few Good Men happened on a military base, it's still classified. There's just not a lot of public details about it, and certainly not any books written about it, but I was able to find some resources out there, so I'll make sure to put a link to those over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the answer to the Two Truths and a Lie game, here's a five-star review from Sam Fredrickson with the title, Just What I Was Looking For. If you know me at all, and I don't think many of you do, but if you do, you'll know that whenever I watch a movie that is based on a true story, I spend half the time googling the accuracy of the film. I am a huge history fan and love knowing the actual reality of the events behind the blockbusters. Dan satisfies that part of me so completely that I've come to take his word as true gospel. He could tell me that the sky was yellow and I wouldn't even feel the need to fact check. Not only is he committed to giving us the truth behind every story he covers, he does it in an engrossing way. I love the two truths and a lie that he starts every episode on. And even with movies I've seen a million times and I've looked into myself, like a certain Disney warrior princess for example, I find myself leaving every episode more informed than when I started it. Good work my man. Keep it up." That's an amazing review, thank you Sam. So, for those of you who don't follow me on Twitter, I'm at DanLeFab, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, by the way. After Sam posted this review, I actually sent him a photo of the sky here in Oklahoma City just after a major thunderstorm that we'd had just the night before. The sun was setting, but there were thick, massive clouds overhead, and that made the sky look yellow. So, I guess at times, the sky does look yellow. Anyway. I don't really organize which review gets added to which episode. I just add the next one to the next episode as the reviews come in. But it's kind of appropriate that Sam's review popped up on this episode because of its unsolved nature and the conspiracy theories surrounding it. So if you don't know who Sam is, allow me to informally introduce you to him. Sam is a fellow podcaster who has an amazing show. It's called Not Alone. And he teams up with his friend, Jason, to talk about everything weird and paranormal. I'm a huge fan of their show, so if you're into educational and entertaining podcasts about cryptids, aliens, ghosts, and hauntings, or just plain unexplained mysteries, you should definitely check out Not Alone over at notalonepodcast.com. Thanks again, Sam, for the great review. Now, if you want to leave a review for me to read on a future episode, you can leave those either on Apple Podcasts or on the Based on a True Story Facebook page over at facebook.com slash based on a true story podcast. Finally, it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number 1. The real Marine attacked in the Code Red incident was not murdered. Number 2. The real Daniel Caffey ended up being mysteriously murdered. Number 3. Aaron Sorkin started writing a few good men on cocktail napkins. Did you find out which one is a lie? the lie is. Number 2. Daniel Caffey was Tom Cruise's character in the movie, and he wasn't a real person. However, as we learned, sadly, David Cox was murdered in such a way that's shrouded in mystery. It's something that to this day is unexplained. Don't forget you can join the Based on a True Story community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash podcast. You can follow the show on Instagram, where it's at Based on a True Story Podcast, where I like to post some photos of the faces and places behind each episode of the podcast. Or, if you've got any questions you'd like to hear me answer on the show, you can find me directly on Twitter, where I'm at dan DanLeFeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Or, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at Based on a True Story dot com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.